everybody. Welcome to another episode of Courtside with Beelins and Tennis, part of the Tennis Channel Podcast Network. We have with us an individual that has coached a couple of legends in Pete Sampras and Roger Federer. This individual is currently working with Taylor Fritz, and you can also hear him doing such great work on Tennis Channel. It's an absolute privilege to have him on with us tonight. Please welcome to the pod, Paul Anacone. Paul, thank you so much for taking time out of your evening, talking your tennis journey with us. This is going to be a fun one. It sure is. I thanks for your patience. I, you know, Steve probably thought I was trying to give him the cold shoulder. He had to pause <laughs> so many times before we could nail it down. But uh, thanks for the patience. Looking forward to it. And I'm sure we're going to have some, uh, some fun topics to chat about. Oh, for sure. And whether it was going to happen today or in, or in 12 months from now, we were, we were fired up to have you on. So end of a long year. Um, kudos to everybody in the tennis world uh, getting through 2021 in this pandemic. We're still unfortunately in it. We're not quite out of it. Um, again, <laughs> great job by everybody involved to get us um, through the year. What are you doing, I guess, tail end of the year, very beginning of the new year um, yeah, before you know- the Australian? Yeah, it's an interesting time, right? And as you get older, you, you go through so many of these off-season, pre-season, end-of-season kind of uh, situations that it's always, for me, it's very exciting because a couple of things happen. You get to take a deep breath, which I think is really important for the players um, and the coaches and the tennis community. Um, and then you get to get reinvigorated about what's going to happen next year. And after 2000. And 21, all the great storylines and all the terrific um, things that happened. I can't wait. I can't wait to see it. And you mentioned it. Look, it's been a brutal time around the globe the last uh, 24 months. And and we're all keeping our fingers crossed, hoping things get more back to quote unquote normal. Um, But I just love that sports is one of those things that can give us something to escape to. You know, I'm a big sports fan myself. And so even all the different permutations that we saw in the last 12 to 18 months with no fans and different arenas and different basically venues and kind of different areas to go play, it was played. So so we're making progress and uh, knock on wood that it gets better and better. Amen to that. Sports has been a savior for a lot of people during this uh, uh, pandemic. It was brutal when nothing was going on when this when this first thing all started. So um, I know most of the younger generation knows of your work at Tennis Channel and as a coach of Pete and Roger and now with Taylor. But, you know, let's not skip over something. You had a really solid playing career. And I want to start I want to start your college career. I mean, you played at Tennessee 1982 through 84, I believe, named the ITA player of the year. Uh, in 84, 51 and three in singles while win- winning the ITA Indoor Singles Championship, all SEC, all American. I mean, talk about your experience at Tennessee and, and shout out, by the way, Tennessee, Chris Woodruff right now leading the way, doing a damn good job at Tennessee. <laughs> he sure is. Chris played after I did, but um, yeah, had a so- win over Andre at the French, too. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. So, so some of my fondest memories, you know, collegiate sports is for me. Um, such a industry and all collegiate sports driven by emotion and passion, you know, and, and I love it. It's become extremely commercialized in the big money-making sports like basketball and, and football, et cetera. But college tennis was amazing. And, and I had, um, I think the best college coach that there ever was and Mike DePalmer senior, the late great Mike DePalmer senior who passed away, um, 
about uh, two years ago in January. And, and I had a great college run with him and his son. And unfortunately, Mike Jr. just passed away a few months ago, pancreatic cancer. So um, I had a great environment. I loved the University of Tennessee. Um, it was a thriving sports environment for me. And it's really where I came into my own. I never played, I never played an international, um, any of the majors in junior tennis. You know, it's always pretty good, never great. Um, and, and college was really my launching pad and enabled me to actually believe that I could play on, on the pro tour. And most of that was because of Coach DePalmer. Um, he and Nick Bolateri had a lot of faith in me. And I was at Bolateri's when they were partners uh, growing up and they thought that I was gonna be able to do it. I never really knew until I got to college and started to understand what being a professional athlete was like. And, and thanks to Coach D and uh, all the folks back in volunteer land. And, and I also had, my brother was my coach. My brother coached me my whole career and, and he was, was and is um, one of my best friends on the planet and an unbelievable tennis mind. So I had a lot of good people helping me. But Paul, the Mike with Mike Senior, tell us a little bit about what it was that set him apart. I mean, you just gave him a great compliment, but what did he instill in you? What was it that made him such a good coach? Well, I think that's, you know, look, I think, Steve, that that's part of the reason why I've been able to coach is the people I've been around. Coach DePalmer, uh, Boletari, my brother, all very different personalities, but all really smart tennis minds. And so... What, what Coach D did for me was he was one of the first people that unabashedly was telling me and convincing me, you're going to be a pro player and you're going to be a damn good pro player. And, and just no, you know, bells and whistles just felt like that from the beginning. Ever since he kind of saw me when I was 13, 14 years old, he always just had this belief in me. And I think that that was my first um, initiation of understanding what confidence was and understanding what was necessary to have that confidence. But the thing coaching wise, where I thought he was so amazing was his personality. Um, he had such a vibrant and passionate personality. And, and this is where I think tennis is different than all these other sports, all the other team sports, is if you want to be a good tennis coach, you have to figure out how to mesh your personality with a lot of different personalities. And it isn't any more prevalent than coaching a college tennis team where you've got a lot of different personalities and you've got to unite as a team, right? So Coach D was great at that. He was a lot of fun. He understood um, my personality incredibly well. He understood the game incredibly well. And he made it a lot of fun. And, and I think, Steve, the biggest thing, like I said, is he planted that seed of belief in belief. me. And that was really the catalyst. Interesting. Well, yeah. just a quick side to that, Paul. It seems like that's something that came into play much later. We'll get into it more. But just the fact that when I look back on the Sampras Agassi years and you seem like such a perfect fit for Pete and Brad Gilbert was the right fit for Andre couldn't that might not have worked in reverse right so getting back to what you said about personality isn't yeah, that you know, I think that's a great you know that's a great point Steve is and that's what you you just don't know in individual sports when it's that mono focused right it's not people aren't 
you know, they're not congregating around, um, you know, Belichick's game plan. The players aren't conforming. I mean, the players are conforming to him. In tennis, Pete and Roger and Henman and these guys aren't conforming to my philosophy. My, my philosophy has to be bought in by the player. And what you have to do as a good coach, I think, is you have to find a, a way that you can articulate your philosophy and your strategy a lot of different ways because different players, you know, Pete, I'd end to be really succinct with. Pete didn't want to talk about tennis till he was blue in the face. You have to be clear, succinct, and simple. And, and that's what Pete was. Henman would stay up all night and talk tennis and gadgets and this and that. And Roger was somewhere in the middle of those two. So you have to figure out how to manage those different personalities. And, and you said it, Andre and Brad were terrific for each other and they kind of thrived off each other's energy. And Pete and I seemed to mesh together really well. Um, a lot of it's because I'd known him since he was 16 and I think we were pretty comfortable with each other. So that helped. And of course, I had the late, great Tim Gully in my ear mentoring me, helping me navigate a very challenging time um, and helping me understand what it was going to be like to do that job. So I, I've been really, really fortunate and had some great players and more importantly, some great mentors that have helped me kind of pursue this. Brad Gilbert echoed your thoughts, by the way, when he spoke with us, he said the same thing with Andre. He could speak. And Andre had a photo, photographic memory. He remembered everything. He can go into great detail and talk about tennis with Andre forever. With someone like Andy Roddick, he didn't want, he could not go into that much detail with him. Andy just didn't take it in like that. Andy wanted clear, concise, and let's move on type of thing. Yeah. So um, great minds obviously think alike. We're going to get into a lot of your coaching uh, philosophy and, and your experiences there, but I don't want to skip out on your pro career because you had a damn good pro career. I mean, Singles ranking of 12 in, 80, in 1986, won three singles titles. Wimbledon quarterfinalist in 1984 and doubles even surpassed those results. You won 14 tournaments, career high doubles ranking number three, Grand Slam winner, right, with Christo Van Rensburg yep. in 85. Yep. Um, later stages of your career, finalist in the Open with, with David Wheaton, yep. I believe. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, I picked good partners. I picked yeah. good partners. You know, you got you to make sure you pick the right people. You're only as good as a company you keep, I think. That, that's just not in sports. That's in everything in life. Right? Exactly. Exactly. But, but, but you, I mean, talk, uh, talk a little bit about your experience on the Pro Tour because you, you had a really good career. Yeah, look, I, I love playing and I played a unique style. Um, Steve probably remembers and you may remember a bit of me just kind mm -hmm. of rushing the net and at all costs coming forward. And, and because it was so different, um, I, I think it was really important for me to trust it and to buy into it. And I think that's what coach De Palmer and my brother really, my brother especially really helped me understand that, you know, you have to believe in the way you play. There's a lot of players that are better than you when you stay back. There's a lot of players, but there's not a lot of players that can relentlessly put pressure on their opponents like you can because your hand-eye coordination, the ability to chip and charge and take the ball early and get on top of the net and steal their time. So I, I think Steve, my brother, was incredible at, at managing that. And, and, you know, I went through a couple of different times in my career where I tried to become better from the back of the court. I had some brilliant tennis people, brilliant tennis people, legends, who I'm not going to say, that were unbelievably helpful to me 
but said, you know, you really got to start working on your ground strokes more. You got to spend more time. And I did that. I spent a lot of time and my ranking went from 12 to 40. <laughs> and, 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 you know, in the middle of all that frustration, I, you know, I was working hard. I thought I was doing all the right stuff. And here I had the great, you know, mind of my brother in the corner through all this. And finally, when I kind of got to the end of it, I said, Steve, you know, what's the deal? I'm working so hard and hitting the ball much better now. Look at where I'm ranked. What's going on? And Steve said, <laughs> Steve said, you look much better losing now. You look much better losing. The points are better. It looks really good. You look better losing. And, and he just said, you've got to play with what you do well. Yeah. And right after he did that actually was when, was when I won Vienna is because I kind of reinvested into that style. And um, I ended up beating Kelly Everton in five sets. I beat a very young Peter Korda, but I, I, I reinvested in that style of play. So again, my coaching philosophy is about the player understanding who they are as a person and who they are as a player. And, and that really has to get bought into by the player. And I think that's why I did have some, you know, some success on the tours because I inevitably went back to what I knew I was good at. Do it. Know, know what you do well and do it very well. And you'll, you'll be fine. You'll have success. Exactly. As far as coaching and, you know, the, the connection with Pete is, is quite interesting because it was in 1995 in Australia, I believe. You were there playing an event. Um, you were still playing. I think you were finishing up. Mm -hmm. Pete was there with, with Tim Gullickson. And Tim got sick. And we remember, I think it was the, 19, it was the quarterfinal match with, with Pete and Jim. Um, and you saw the emotions from, from Pete. And it was, uh, again, you don't see this a lot in sports. And, a lot, and the public views these people as robots. And these people are not robots. Um, they're humans. And you saw, and, and I know Steve, Steve Flink can speak to this a ton um, with his knowledge of Pete. Um, you saw Pete's emotions get the best of him that night. I mean, it, it, you never saw Pete break down like that. And the reason being was because Tim was sick and, and we we're also sorry with what happened with Tim. Um, you were there, not part of the team, but you knew Pete for a little while, right? And it just, when Tim had to fly back home, you kind of took over the reins at that point. Yeah, I mean, it was a really tough time. I've been there and hanging out with those guys during the tournament and been to the other matches, et cetera, et cetera. And I remember when um, Pete was going to play, I don't even remember which match it was, if it was uh, Magnus Larson. I don't remember, but I, I, right before the match, 20 minutes, I said, where's Gully? And I just want to grab a ticket so I can come sit with, you know, um, with Timmy and watch. And he said, Gully's in the hospital. Um and, you know, he had an episode and, and I was like, oh, my gosh. And he said, yeah, I said, you know, what can I do? And he said, it'd be great if you went to the hospital to see him. And so that's what I did. I went to the hospital, see him um, and, and also did see the match. And then when they found out what the diagnosis was, you know, we were all felt like we had just gotten punched in the stomach um, and didn't even know what to do. But Gully was Gully and he was like, listen, can you just, you know, can you just stay down here and, and just hang out with Pete and help with all of the stuff that needs to be helped with? Um, and I, at the time, had also been coaching, helping Jim grab a little bit. And so I'd done a little bit of coaching um, and, and I'd helped a few different players. 
And these guys were all my friends. And I said, sure, you know, and I'll go, I'll talk to you every day and you can, you know, hold my hand through this. And we all just said, great, this, this is what we'll do. And the goal was to make the best out of a horrible situation. And hopefully for me to hang on and, and help um, as long as I could so that Gully could fight the good fight and inevitably get back. Well, he fought a hell of a good fight. Unfortunately, he didn't get back. But I, I know that all Pete's successes um, during that time were um, medicine for Tim. And, and I can tell you throughout that whole time, all the conversations I had with Tim and all of the teaching and the camaraderie and the laughs on the phone with him and home and me at tournaments was awesome for me. I mean, I just got a masterclass uh, mentorship, um, albeit in a really horrible way, but I think it helped all of us to have each other. And then when Pete lost and, and ultimately broke down emotionally against Jim, that was one of the hardest things. I remember being up with Pete until almost four in the morning um, after that. He, back in the hotel, we were just hanging out talking and he, he just said, I've, I've never lost control of my emotions like that in my life. I've never, I've never felt like that. And, and so, you know, I was there. And so we just talked about it. And I had lost one of my best friends when I was 19 to leukemia. And so I said, you know, you can't stop how you feel. So the hard thing for, for you is you felt a certain way with 10,000 people so walking the say. center court and yeah. 6 million on TV. You know, I got to mourn and be shocked and all of my emotional gamut by myself. I said, unfortunately, you didn't get to do that, but it doesn't, you know, there, there's no, there's no evaluating, evaluating it or judging it. It just is. You're a human being. You know, he's one of your best friends on the planet in an unbelievably dire situation. And, and you just showed how human you are. There's, that's just life. And so I think it was in, in a very kind of sad way, it was a, um, an emotional growth time for Pete too, to understand just kind of how to manage this difficult adversity and also to accept himself and the emotions that go on when you're trying to do the monumental things that he's trying to do. So, you know, they're all life lessons and they're, they're, that one is a really sad one for me, but also not to be, you know, I don't want to only have the morbid stuff because we had amazing times and Timmy G was awesome. And, and, you know, we had so many great conversations and, and so many laughs. So there were some great times too, but look, it's, you know, no matter what you do in life, it's as the cliche is, it's a journey. It's not a destination. And, and all the great players figure out how to manage all of these things. And Pete went through some pretty traumatic times in his career. And I've, you know, I would put him up against just about anybody on the planet in terms of laser like focus. Um, people always thought he's this quiet, you know, withdrawn, he was an incredible competitor. And, and in the big moments, um, I wouldn't mind him playing a match for my life. Yeah, I, was, I've asked Steve you know, this before. You pick anyone in the world, you know, at, at any time to, to serve for the match, you're going with Pete Sanford? Yeah, I mean, look, look at it. Look at his, what, what's his major final? Is 14 out of 18 in major final? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, but Paul, plays, I want, plays I a big match as well. Go ahead, Steve, sorry. You described so well 
that that and you recall it so vividly talking to Pete that night after the the gym match and strikes me that whenever you and I've heard you tell these stories before that you were remarkable in, at, at such a young age at, at the psychology of the game, the psychology of life. How did you develop that so early in your life? I could understand it now as you helped Taylor Fritz, but you were quite mm-hmm. young and yet able to be, home, I wouldn't say a father figure to Pete, but you also were at the, the very least like an older brother. I mean, they, 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 that was a very important part of what you did, was it not? I think so. Yeah. Look, and, and <laughs> you know, the blessing and curse of coaching great players is they're great. Right. And that, but that's awesome because they're great. But the bad part of that is they tend to only make news when they lose. Mm-hmm. So sure. It's a great coaching job, but you better keep winning. And if you're that player, you better keep winning. So I think a lot of the psychological stuff I learned through my playing um, years as, as I was winding down, I learned. And also, my mother was a guidance counselor. My father was an educator. My brother was very introspective and smart. Um, so I, I was around people that thought a lot, you know. And, and, and I think that as an athlete, um, especially as a tennis player, and this is why, Steve, this is why I love tennis, is it's just you. You're naked out there. You know, you walk onto center court. And there's nothing else like it on the planet than walking through the arches of center court and walking out there at Wimbledon. And there's nowhere to hide. There's no timeout, bringing in the substitute, get the, you know, go, go, go take a breather with your coach for a half an hour. There's that, that's it. So for me, you, you better figure out how to manage that emotional stuff. Otherwise you're not going to maximize your talent, whatever your level is. And, and so I always felt like, when I, when I started in it, Steve, I looked at, at evaluating players in three areas, their head, their heart, and their physical skills. Those three things make up the player. And there's a lot of players that are good in one. Some of them are good in two. The all-time greats are up at the top in all three of those things. And, and, and I think that I realized that at a very young age, playing and coaching, and I just try to you know, even to this day, you talk about working with Taylor Fritz. I mean, I just try to keep my antenna up. I learn something different every day. I learn something new. I have more contemplative thoughts. There's more things to evaluate. So I, I, I think that, sure, you have to know tennis. You have to have a player that buys in. But you also have to be objective and you have to know when to talk, when to listen, when to be a dictator when to receive, you've got to figure all that stuff. That's not easy. That's the hard part of coaching right there. It is. It's, it's tough. And I think it's different in team sports. I think most of the team coaches don't have as close of a connection because they're with a team, you know, the football team, how many guys on a football, how many people on the entire team, 80, I don't Mm -hmm. even know. I mean, in the basketball 15, you know, so, so you have, sure you have relationships, but it's not traveling 35 weeks a year with one player playing cards with them five nights a week, you know, knowing all these things, it's a very different dynamic. So I think that lends itself to having to be pretty creative to keep your message alive and also having to be probably a good listener too, because it's not a one-way street. 
Yeah. Uh, and, and for the younger, the, maybe the younger uh, generation, the match we're talking about with Pete and Jim, Pete actually won that match. It was incredible to go see that performance. So you could see it on, you know, go on YouTube and whatever. He lost a couple rounds later in the final, but the mm-hmm. specific match that we were referring against Jim, Pete came back and won that match. And it was truly, it was a special performance. Um, I know everyone wants to know about your work with Roger. So if you don't mind us transitioning over to that topic, how did that all come about? And um, yeah, a question that we'll ask later on with your current work with, with, with Taylor is how do you kind of go about what worked with Pete may not necessarily work with Roger and what worked with Roger may not necessarily work with Taylor. And that's just the, that's how the greatest coaches are when they kind of adapt to each player they work with. But if you can talk a little bit about, um, you know, your work with Roger, that'd be awesome. Yeah. All that stuff. You're exactly right. And I I knew that from the beginning, I knew Roger through working with Pete and also coaching Tim Henman for almost four years after Pete. So I got to be friendly with Roger and his family and, and his agent and, and, um, and I'd known him pretty well. And then I got a call, uh, you know, I got a call to ask if I had any interest in, if I would be interested in, in helping him and in, in working with him. And, you know, could I come to Switzerland and spend a couple of weeks just together to see how it went? And I was like, sure. So I, I went over there and we went out to dinners and, you know, I got to know them even more closely, got to know Mirka and the kids and the team much more closely. And, um, you know, the, the thing that in those situations is it's really important for the coach to understand who they're with, right? Because everybody's different. You mentioned Taylor. I've been with Taylor for, you know, three and a half years now. And it's a very different developmental phase than starting with Roger Federer you know, where he was at that late stage in his career. So I knew who I was with. I'd been with someone that achieved a lot so that I understood that dynamic a bit. And then it was about understanding his subtleties and his nuances, how he liked to hear messages, how he liked to talk about tennis, when to talk about it, when not, you know, what buttons to push. Those things only can come if the player and the coach have a relationship that's mutually respectful and and Roger was amazing from the beginning I mean he was unbelievable from the beginning the first day we walked walked on the court in Zurich he said he was hitting balls and after 10 minutes he said okay what do you want to do and I was like it's that simple I just tell you what to do and you're going to do it and he goes well maybe not that simple because if it's something I don't believe in then I'm going to ask you why I'm going to ask you why. And when I was a kid, they used to call me the why man, because I always wanted to know why we were doing stuff. But if it makes sense, yeah, we'll do it. And I could not believe how receptive he was to ideas, philosophies, even stuff that he didn't really, this is why he's one of the most, I think he's one of the most unique human beings. I've never been around anyone that's that successful. That's so willing to listen. And, and, and to, he is so good at taking a step back and taking a breath and evaluating and not having a rush to judgment. You know, he lets things digest um, and he lets things kind of simmer so he can figure them out pragmatically. He, he's one of the best people. Pete was awesome at that too, but in a very different way. Um, so I think you know, Roger, when I started to understand all these little nuances, 
I knew he loved tennis. I couldn't believe how much he still loved tennis. I still, to this day, still don't understand how he loves to practice like he still does. I mean, <laughs> the guy loves the game. He's so happy practicing. There are times when we were in Dubai and it's 125 degrees and the guy's laughing and having a good time through three different shirts and two different practice partners and Pierre Paganese on the court, making him do jumps over benches and throw medicine balls and picking up his racket and doing drill and loving it and just loving it and kidding and having a good time. Um, you know, and, and, you know, I think a lot of that is because he's had such a good team for so long. Severin Luti's been at his side forever. He's maybe the best coach um, that people don't ever talk about. I mean, the guy's incredibly good at what he does, Severin. So all of these little things come together. Um, and when you're fortunate enough to be around greats, it's, it's, for me, it's a learning experience, you know, and hopefully I know enough that when we get into a situation where they really need something that is valuable, I can add it to them. And, and, you know, Pierre Paganini said the best thing he's ever, I've ever heard as a coach. He said to me, we were talking about stuff one day and he said, now my feeling is the difference with coaching and training, what we do with someone like Roger is it's only one or 2% difference in the level that he's going to play. But that one or 2% difference is at the 99th percentage, most important time of every match. And that's the difference between getting to the quarters at Wimbledon and playing in the finals. And, and so all of these little subtleties add a little bit of a benefit at a big moment. And, and I tell you, Pierre is just, he's, he's an amazing individual. Just, I learned a ton from him, but just a great mind about how to train, why to train and all of the training habits that pay dividends in moments like that, that he just talked about. So look, it's, 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 it's amazing. Roger's just one of these guys that you could spend all day with. I mean, he, what you see is what you get. He loves people. He loves life. He's a citizen of the world. Um, one of the most optimistic people I've ever been around. And that's why even through these times of adversity right now, you know, he genuinely, still has a smile on his face and, and it's about how fortunate he is and the challenges that are ahead of him. So it's, um, man, it's been, uh, it's been a pretty fun road. Well, talk about the, the differences and similarities with Pete and Roger as a coach. I mean, and I, I start off with the supposition that these are two you know, self-sufficient guys. I would trust either one of them to go out there and do it on their own. That's not disrespecting you. I just mean, I think they're, they're remarkable that way. So how did it, how was it similar? How was it different in terms of how you went about helping them? Yeah, that's, I mean, it's a great point, Stephen. You know, I said that to Pete at the beginning. I said, why do you, why do you think you even need a coach? You know, and, and, you know, and he said, well, you know, no matter what I know about myself and what I know about tennis, I can't see everything while I'm out there trying to do it you know, and I need somebody that I trust that's got, you know, the computer that can sift through the right stuff that makes the most sense at big moments. Roger was the same way. Roger felt the same way. They both knew even as smart as they were and as much as they trusted themselves and as self-sufficient as they were, 
they needed the right people to help them at just those moments that really matter. Now, the biggest difference is Roger was and is um, a global icon that embraced it and loved it and loves it. And, and he's, you know, he loves going all over the world and loves bringing his family. Pete was not. Pete, you, as you know, is an introspective guy, um, comes from a Greek middle-class family and, you know, brother, a couple of sisters. And, and he, you know, wasn't born to be in the spotlight. But what, what he, where he was born was to hold up as many major titles as he could. And, and, and I asked him about that early on. And he said, you know, after I lost in the, you've heard the story 50 times, you know, but after he lost in the finals of the Open in 2002 to Edberg, that's when he made a decision of why he was going to play. And I said, what do you mean by that? And he said, you know, I could just play and I'm going to be four to six in the world or eight and I'm going to make six million dollars a year but you have to look yourself in the mirror and go why am i playing and after he lost to edberg it took him a while he's like all that matters is how well i do in the majors and how long i can stay at the top that's all that matters that's why i play yeah that was and 1992 I, I think i think you said yeah. 2000 it was 1992 i'm sorry 1992 yeah, yeah. apologize yeah and, and and roger has a similar philosophy but i always felt like this is, I don't mean this in a derogatory way. I always felt like Roger was the incredible competitor, but he was more like the sportsman. And Pete, I felt like he was that laser-like quiet gladiator. Like you don't really know what's behind the eyes. And I can tell you when Pete was on tour and he walked around and he was in the locker room, it is off-putting because people didn't know him and didn't get him except the people that were really close. And he didn't have a ton of people that were really close. He didn't mean this in a mean way or a divisive way. He was just a shy kid who liked small groups and <clears throat> knew what he wanted to do and knew how he wanted to compete and really processed a lot internally. Roger walks into the Australian open and he's talking, you know, to the security guy at the door, how you doing? How's your year been? But, you know, and, Roger could be running for, you know, president of the world everywhere he goes because he's. Oh, I want to I want to hit on that point because I saw it first. We just we just talked about this very point with Chris Clary, who wrote this great book on Roger, obviously. Um, I saw it firsthand at Labor Cup in Chicago when it was I don't know, was it 2018 now, I guess. Um, he is always on. Roger is always on. And the energy that that takes outside of what he's tasked to do between those white lines. How does he do it? He does press in five different languages. He does all these different things outside of those white lines. And he's uh, that takes a tremendous amount of energy. I don't think everybody out, you know, in the public realizes all that work and, uh, and all that stuff that he has to do. And that takes a lot out of him. And yet here he is one of the, you know, arguably one of the greatest of all time. Yeah. I, I think, I think the interesting part about that is it takes a lot out of him takes a lot out of people if you allow it to. It's like, it's kind of like, it's kind of like, you know, you shouldn't feel guilty. Someone's like trying to tell you not to feel guilty. Guilty is how it lands on you. It's how you feel about it. So it takes a lot of energy if you make it take a lot of energy. Roger doesn't. It doesn't, you know, you, you talk about it goes into the press conference for the last 20 years 
does it in three languages, does all the stuff afterwards. I've been, I can't tell you how many appearances I've been to with him that after 40 minutes, I'm, I'm like, I'm, I'm done. I'm out of here. I'm exhausted. You know, and he's there for an hour and 20 minutes talking to everybody. And, and he's curious. And Roger Federer is so interesting because he's interested. And, 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 and it's pretty simple. He loves life. He loves people. And he loves the gifts that he's been given to pursue his dreams. And he doesn't take anything for granted. And he's just very much in the moment. And, and it's hard to teach that. I don't know. Every time I see Robbie and Lynette, you know, his parents, I'm just like, whatever they did, they should sell, you know, because it's amazing how he's handled all this. And people, you guys both know it so well, people think it's all fun and games with all of that living in a fishbowl. It's not, I mean, look, I was around it just as an innocent bystander for 15 years with, you know, Pete and Roger and Tim Henman. It's freaking exhausting. <laughs> you know, it's, I mean, it's great fun. It's nice to sit on the floor and watch the Lakers play. You know, yeah, I like that, but there's, a, it's also sometimes it's tiring to not be able to get through a meal or to get out of the airport or even to get into a taxi or, you know, there's some stuff that that's hard too. And I've never seen anyone. I've never been around anyone that takes it in stride like Roger. It's really amazing. But Paul, just to quickly return to this theme, you talked about Pete and Roger and how they sort of their presence in the locker room, the differences there. But you also we were also talking about the sportsmanship theme. Don't you think when it came to on court sportsmanship, the, the similarities were there? Because I, I thought to me that that was one of Pete's great traits as fierce a competitor as he was. He was a sportsman. Yeah, I think both of those guys are like that. They, you know, I think it's misunderstood. I think because they're, you know, Pete was probably less emotive. Who do you think was less emotive? Peter Roger? Yeah. Uh, I would say slightly Pete, just slightly, right? Yeah, yeah, I think so. I think so too. Um, but both of them are unbelievably thoughtful when they play. They're really... You know, there's not a ton of wasted energy, but their computer in their head is always going. And, and they found a way, you know, to compete with ferocity, but also with humility and grace and class. And right. that's a tough balancing act. You know, it's really, you know, either you're brash and you're busting chops and yelling or, or you know, you're not. And they they were somewhere in the middle. Rafa does it with a lot more passion and energy, but he's a, you know, he's much more um, energized, but he also has that humility, but it's a different kind of energy. You know, Novak has had, you know, Novak does it in a different way, but he's had his ups and downs as we've seen over the years, because he is, you know, he is such a uh, brutal competitor, but Pete and Roger are very similar like that. You're, you're, you're right. Um, and I think a lot of it, they process through their brain. And I remember talking to Roger about it. And when he was a kid, he was really temperamental. And he just said, I finally realized I can't, he used the term, I can't find solutions if I'm that emotional. So I've got to figure out how to manage that aspect so I can find solutions. Yeah, so, that's, that's great. Um, before we want to... Um... You know, talk a little bit. I want to hear your thoughts a little bit in 2022. 
as part of the tennis channel podcast network we all know your great work on tennis channel um the coaching in the big segment i love just hearing you know picking these great coaches brains is like the best right get that going again because that was some of my favorite stuff um talk a little bit about your work at tennis channel and and uh you know how you got started with with all that well it was a little bit by accident because after I was working with Sloan Stevens in 2013 and 14, I had some time and someone asked me if I wanted to come into the studio and do like four or five days of the ATP finals. And so I did. And I, when I was younger, I did a little bit of stuff for Eurosport at a couple tournaments and I, I actually liked it. You know, I really liked it. Um, and especially with the team that they've got there, I had had and have so many people that have taught me so much about how to do it. And the thing that was hard for me at the beginning to realize as a commentator is no matter how you do it, a lot of people aren't going to like it because you just like to hear certain people. Like there's some, I'm not going to say any names, but there are certain people that get paid a fortune that are supposedly the greatest in the world that I won't listen to for five seconds, just human nature, just not my style, right? So at the beginning, I had to realize no matter what I do, there's some people are gonna cringe, you know? And so you can't please everybody. And, you know, Jim Courier has been unbelievably gracious since day one with me, helping me understand how to trust my own voice in terms of my knowledge of the game. Um, don't be something that you're not, you know, all those things and the, the other people that have been there for so long, the players in particular, like Lindsey Davenport and Tracy Austin, and those, they were just so great in helping me figure out myself. And then you have, you know, the hosts who have been amazing. You know, you look at the people I've gotten to spend a time, you know, Brett Haber and Mary Carrillo and Ted Robinson, Steve Weissman in the NFL. And we have so many great hosts that have been there and everybody's ego has been really good. Martina, the most accomplished person on the planet has been like the begin from the beginning, anything you will just let me know. I'm like, just tell me when I'm screwing up or right before I screw up. And, and so everybody has been great. And, and look, the biggest thing I can say, please, please don't tell anybody, but they pay me to watch tennis. Yeah. Right. <laughs> <laughs> I Paul, mean, I share that Paul. That's something we have in common. I mean, it's amazing, right? And and I I I still I'm a huge fan. I even when I'm not when I'm not working, I'm in my office, and I usually have the Tennis Channel app going with TC Plus at this station of matches, and then I've got Tennis Channel, and I I just I love to watch players try to solve problems under pressure. I love it, and and the Tennis Channel folks have been so gracious and so helpful. Um, I hope I can stay there um, until I just can't see anymore <laughs> <laughs> that's great yeah i i could tell you a whole lot of people like uh, like you more than they don't like you and uh, you know speaking of myself if i get everybody in my same household liking me in the same day it's an accomplishment Join the so club cool. yeah there you go <laughs> um so to, again i appreciate your time just want to end kind of 2022 um a couple of things i and and if we go over you mentioned sloan a little bit I mentioned something earlier to Steve, and I think it's interesting when you talk about Coco Goff in 2022, you know, all the focus was on her in 2019, 2020 was so goofy. Now you have 2021 and now you got people like 
uh, Emma Ranakanu, right? Layla Fernandez. I think that'll actually help Coco and take a little bit of the pressure off that not all eyes are just solely on her. I think 2022 could be a big year for her. What are your thoughts on, on Coco? I think so. Look, I've always, from the beginning, I've always felt, and, and you know, one of my, you, you mentioned the coaching and the big stuff. I got to talk, you know, to Coco's dad in Washington one year. And for me, that was awesome. You know, that was like four years ago just to, and he was so candid and so thoughtful about their process. Um, I, I, I think that the other young women that are doing great, you know, Leila Fernandez, as you mentioned, and Radikanu, that does help. Um, I, I've never felt Coco Golf as an if. I always felt like Coco Golf is just a when. And, and, and so, you know, she's gotten a couple, some stuff going on with her tennis that she needs to fix, I think, her forehand and her serve a bit. And I don't think it's that big of a deal. But the longer you go with something that isn't functioning at the highest level, the harder it is to actually break it down and get it going the right way. So my only concern is, I hope that's what she's working on now, because you don't want to have years and years and years, because no matter what you do, you're creating baggage and hopefully you're creating good baggage. But when it's a, a shot that Look, we've seen with Sasha Zverev the last couple of years, right? The second serve yips for a while. It's hard to work your way out of that stuff. But for Coco, she is so good and does everything so well that even the little glitches in her game are not that big of a deal. She's still a kid. She's still a teenager. She's going to be fine. Like I said, it's not if, it's just when. And you're right. The other young ladies that have done so well are going to help her. I think it's going to help her a lot. I expect her to have a really big 2022. And Novak is motivated as ever. You don't see any dip in his motivation. I don't see it. I just think, you know, the biggest thing about Novak, and I learned this with Pete and Roger, is the greatest of the greats learn how to win when they play average and not lose confidence or emotional energy. And most of the time, when Novak was young, that was a problem. And he, he used up and, and lost a lot of emotional energy. What I've seen in the last decade just has been, I mean, he's dominated the last decade. He literally has. And a lot of that is because he's learned to win when he's average and not lose his confidence. He's learned to get through matches and not make a big deal out of it. Most of the time, there's always the little glitch, but... Compared to when he was younger, there was a lot more of that roller coaster. Now the, the roller coaster is there, but the hills aren't so steep. So I, I just don't know how you can consistently knock him out of his comfort zone. But this is, this is the first year we've seen those, yo, those young guys make him think a little bit. So it'll be interesting. Yeah. Well, what did you think? Did you find it fa fascinating that, Pete at the end of the year in an interview called Novak the greatest of all time. I, I thought that was pretty remarkable. Um, yeah, Pete doesn't like to say stuff that pronounced. Right. So I was a little surprised, but I, you know, I, I have always loathed the situation because I don't believe in that statement because I don't, I think it's virtually impossible to compare eras. And I, I you could say most accomplished of all time, but I, I just don't believe in the greatest because there's no way anyone can prove that Rod Laver wouldn't have been something off the charts with today's sports science and technology and all that other stuff. 
and all of the what ifs that everybody talks about. Borg stopped when he was 26. Yeah. <laughs> how many majors would, how many, how many Borg would have been Rafa before Rafa? He could have won the French Open 20 times. So all of these, that's why I don't believe in the GOAT conversation. I believe in the moat most accomplished of all time. You can say yeah. that. And I think yeah. that's probably, that's, I think that's going to be Novak. And I've thought that for a while. Um, but yeah, I was surprised Pete said that, but I think, you know, in his heart of hearts, he doesn't, uh, he doesn't mince words and he just thinks he's got them. The credentials are the best now. And, and yeah. they seem to be. You think Novak separates himself from Rafa? The, I do. The Grand slam total. At the I, end I do. I do. Unless something happens injury wise for Novak or, he loses his um, motivation. I just, I just think he will because I think as great as Rafa is, it's he's a little older, and it takes more for Rafa to play great than it does for Novak because his game is so efficient. Good point, Steve. I know we can talk with Paul for hours. I want to be. Uh, I appreciate your time, Steve. Anything else we want to talk? Uh, no, about? I. They probably find it, it, you know, it never ceases to amaze me. Paul makes it pretty easy on us, does he not? I mean, his responses are so expansive and thoughtful. And, Paul, I really appreciate your coming on. Well, you guys have been patient, um, and I love this stuff. So anytime, I love to talk tennis. And um, for me, it's just a pleasure to kick this stuff around. And you guys have been awesome. So please uh, don't be strangers. And if you talked about how expansive I am and how well I talk, can you speak with my children so that they feel the same? <laughs> okay. Thanks so much, Bob. This was a blast. Thanks, guys.